0: Welcome to TGI Tourism Geography Insights, a podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas, recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. In Tourism Geographies, we try to optimise and promote the work of our authors And in particular, we focus on recently published papers in the journal. And all of our guests are from all over the world. And we try to provide uh, as much diversity in content as we possibly can. Now, my my guest today has recently published a paper in tourism geographies. Her her name is Eva Erdmanger, and she's from Trier University in Germany. The paper in particular is a very timely one because it talks about participatory destination governance. Or in other words, the, the extent to which we involve stakeholders meaningfully in what happens in tourism. In Eva's paper, she talks about this at length. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Eva Edminger. Hey Eva.
1: Hello. Hey Joseph. Thank you very much for the introduction and for having me. A really Have nice you. opportunity.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. The last time I saw Eva was at the International Geography. Congress in Paris, where Eva presented her own work. Um, or was it Wageningen? I can't remember one of those. Um,
1: yeah, it was Wageningen.
0: Yes. Uh, and, and that's right. Eva's joined us from Germany today. I'm in Japan and hopefully wherever you are in the world, you're seated comfortably and we'll get straight into this. In Eva's paper, which was published in May, on the 1st of May, 2022, the title of the paper is, is The End of Participatory Destination Governance as We Thought to Know It. In her opening to the paper, Efa says this, the appeal to the tourism industry to build back better after the global travel collapse caused by the SARS COVID virus implies avoiding the revival of social movements against tourism. What lessons did we learn from slogans such as tourists go home, which actually became reality in 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic? In the course of the new urban tourism research agenda, it has been acknowledged that urban tourism is not an isolated tourist bubble, but rather the co-production of various social groups who coexist in urban space and compose the contemporary urban everyday life. Many of the contested issues that residents perceive vis-a-vis tourism were often rooted in broader socio-economic, psychological, as well as environmental challenges in urban living environments. Consequently, if urban destinations truly are to build back better and to avoid social conflict, it is inevitable that residents' needs and viewpoints have to be included in local tourism development. So with that said, and in, in terms of quoting Aoife's words, let's get straight into this interview, shall we Eva? Yes, that's good. So, so tell me about who you are and where you are based at the present.
1: Yes, so like you said, my name is Eva Erdmenger, and I'm at the University of Trier in Germany. And um, there I'm in the Department for Leisure and Tourism Geography. So it's one of the few universities in Germany where you combine tourism and geography, which I think is an amazing combination. And I'm a research associate and a lecturer at the university, and I finished my PhD at the beginning of this year.
0: Well, congratulations on finishing the PhD. It's, it's not an easy task, I'm sure you would, you would agree. But to get, yes. to, the, to get to this point uh, is truly a great achievement. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yes. So your study is, is particularly interesting and timely, as you say, because what we've seen around the world in the, in the wake of the pandemic is that cities, to some degree, have become deserted or not as busy as they used to be. And as a result... All of the infrastructure and activity around it has also been impacted. So, in terms of the, the the study that this paper is based on, can you give us a brief background to the study?
1: Yes, of course I can. Well, like I like I said, the study was generally part of my PhD, so part of a larger research project which deals with inclusive destination governance and was very much focused on like social sustainability aspects and community resilience, like all of those aspects have been part of it. And the specific paper that we're talking about today was then very much on the perspective of the residents on destination governance, which I think is a perspective that has been neglected for a long, long time. It was very much the scientific community debating how important that is, and at the same time, we observe that there's a lack of implementation. So I was questioning, like, how can we actually bridge the need that we can prove from a scientific perspective and the lack of implementation in the tourism industry? And yeah, I, I was concerned that maybe the residents were not interested in participating and that's why it would not take place so i thought it would be a good idea to to get into a discussion with the residents and ask them how they think about and feel about participating in tourism to any extent
0: right so can you give us a a very quick overview of the study context the study site which urban context were you working in
1: Yes, um, I worked in Copenhagen, Denmark, and in Munich in Germany, and I chose those two cities because I wanted to go for urban case studies that are popular, but were not yet part of this so-called over-tourism phenomena, so they were not in media yet, and they did not experience any resident protests regarding tourism, but they might have been, and we're talking from a perspective before the pandemic, you know, I started the research in 2019. So at that point, they were still peaking and there was some kind of risk that they would experience this over tourism phenomena. So I went for those two cities being aware that it's two wealthy cities with a rather pricey tourism product, I would say, like not really one of the cheaper urban destinations, but I think it was very interesting to see and that is actually already one of the aspects why they do not experience over-tourism. Yes, so Copenhagen and Munich as two popular urban destinations in Europe.
0: Not to mention two very beautiful cities as well. So you've chosen very well. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yes, you know, you always go into the fields and collect the data and. It was a quite nice time, I must admit.
0: <laughs> well, very well very well chosen. So uh, Copenhagen and Munich are clearly very different examples to say Venice and Barcelona as examples. And mm-hmm. and the, the shortage of um, social movements rising up against tourism is a very interesting phenomenon that's taken place in those cities. But you said it didn't necessarily take place in Copenhagen and Munich. Do you have a reason why?
1: Yeah, I think there are many, many reasons why that's actually how I started my PhD research like that's the exact same question I asked myself, like Munich and Barcelona, for example, have a very similar tourism intensity rate. But Barcelona, we know, has much more was experiencing much more trouble and anti tourism sentiments than Munich does. So I was questioning why. And I found out that there's like, of course, many, many different factors and that is among others, like the cultural gap between the visitors and the residents is in Munich and also in Copenhagen, not that large, like it is people who do have a financial background, which is comparable to the people who live in the city, they are pricey cities, just to rent an apartment in those cities is expensive. And the same goes with the hotels and accommodation. So this cultural gap is one very interesting aspect that I found out. And then other things like how fast did the tourism intensity develop? Uh, Like people in Munich, uh, as you mentioned that as a case, example to Venice. I mean, Venice also has a long history in tourism and Munich does as well. you have to consider that in Munich, you also have the Oktoberfest, which is actually taking place as we speak. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that is a type of tourism, which is not too much appreciated, because it's very much related with alcohol and partying. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, like a, a target group, people who go there and drink a lot and party a lot. It's not too much appreciated among residents, but people in Munich are used to it. And they are aware of the economic benefit so for them it's just like okay it's two weeks of the year and it's fine it's good for the city so i can i can tolerate it Um, and that's another aspect for the case of munich that i found out like the the habituation if you want to call it that way Um, and there are many many more aspects uh, that influence the tolerance yeah
0: Uh, many cities, they have a different political and economic history as well, right? Yes. And that influences their current state. And as a result, you know, things like uh, gentrification, cost of accommodation, and other things like that. But certainly the cultural gap is a really interesting one that would probably make for a very good paper as well later on, um, Eva.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah, I believe
1: that as well. I think it's an aspect that we should look into uh, more closely.
0: Yes. So uh, just to look at some of the more technical aspects of the study that went into this paper for uh, many of the researchers out there, can you give us some insight into how you went about collecting your data? Because when we talk about residents, right, having access to residents, language issues and other practical matters often come into it for the researcher. For you, what can you say about how you went about collecting data and the challenges you encountered along the way?
1: yeah so for collecting my data i figured i want to include two aspects one was that i wanted residents to talk to each other instead of talking to me which is why i decided for focus groups instead of single one-on-one interviews and the other aspect was that i wanted to include photographs in my research because i figured in today's communication photographs became such an important role like we communicate a lot with sharing pictures with each other and they trigger emotions and like unconscious thoughts that we have so i wanted to use those as a trigger in those focus groups so it's a mix of photo elicitation and focus groups something you could call image based focus groups Mm -hmm. and i did five focus groups in each case study In Copenhagen, I collected the data just before the first uh, lockdown, so February and March 2020. Mm -hmm. And I had to cancel the last two focus groups. So I was planning on seven focus groups and I did five and then had to leave Denmark, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And then was the big, big challenge to do focus groups during the pandemic in Munich. Mm. So there the, the law at that time said that maximum five people were allowed to meet. So including me, I had the restriction that I could only bring four people into the focus groups, which was a bummer. Like I really wanted it to be larger groups, but I was legally not allowed to. And that was a big challenge. Um, And then I decided to do five groups as well. Plus I tried two digital focus groups, which was rather spontaneous like because I had to that law came out one week prior to my data collection so I was really struggling and sweating a lot and I was like okay 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 I will just tell the people let's meet in zoom and try to have a discussion online and it worked fine like it was of course a bit different than the in-person discussions but it was still really good data that I got out of those online focus groups yeah and then we started those groups with the pictures so i asked everyone who participated to bring two pictures to the group one picture showing something that was important for their life in the city for example in copenhagen i got a lot of photographs of bicycles (laughs) and the second picture was supposed to show something that was typical tourism in their city and there was all kinds of things that I got. Uh, Of course, like top sites in Copenhagen, New I got, um, yeah, also rental bikes and all kinds of pictures. And then those people showed their picture, explained briefly why they chose it. And that already triggered a very nice discussion before I then jumped in with some discussion questions as well.
0: It's a very interesting um, application of methods in in the study, which is one of the things that I think stands out for for the study. In hindsight, when you look back, were there any limitations with this approach that you've taken?
1: Yes, there were definitely limitations. Like I said, the group size was a bit small, at least in Munich. Mm -hmm. And another aspect, which I think is I, w- I was struggling a lot with that. I really, really tried to avoid it. But talking about like inclusive destination governance, and I wanted everyone to have the chance to participate. But for me myself, just in that study, it was very hard to get everyone to the table. In Copenhagen, there was, first of all, a language barrier. I needed people who were able to speak English with me because I I would not be able to translate everything from Danish. And then also considering marginalized people, like homeless people, people who suffer from tourism, but they, yeah, they probably never have a chance or they don't feel encouraged to talk about it. I really wanted those voices in my focus groups as well. And it was so hard to achieve that. I talked to social workers in both cities and ask them if they know someone who I could invite Uh, in Copenhagen I went to a hotel which is managed by a person who lived on the street for I think it was 16 or 20 years and now she's the manager of the hotel and employs people who live on the street and I talked to her and she actually just gave me the advice like well if you want to talk to people who live on the street you rather give them money. It can be a prostitute. You go buy a prostitute. Or you go and have lunch with someone who lives on the street. And then you talk to them. And I have to admit I did not feel too comfortable doing that. Because mm. I was also all by myself in the field. Yes. yes. And I, I realized like well okay. If we want to talk to those people. We we really have to yeah, pass some barriers. Some social barriers as well. And that was my... I think my, I don't want to say regret, but I I did miss voices that are very, very important because they are difficult to access, I would say. Right.
0: And of course, you know, in in practice, there are the university research ethics requirements that you must um, work with as well, right? Um, Exactly. Often interviewing people who are marginalized is seen as having some power disparities between the researcher and the participant and all sorts of other issues can come into it. So um, what you also highlight is how researchers have a plan, but when they go into the field, sometimes, very actually, oftentimes, <laughs> things don't go according to plan. Being able to adapt and shift very quickly is a really important characteristic and, or skill that researchers must have. And I was particularly interested in, in this because when you talk about residents, as such because you know it's like saying stakeholders or community we know that within within these labels there's a wide spectrum of different people with different characteristics in your study what did you define as residents or did you leave it relatively open
1: that is a very good question and i think especially in the field of new urban tourism that is a very important discussion do we really want to talk about residents or maybe urban dwellers, because we have people who commute into the city. We have the tourists, like visitors and yeah, so who is the resident? Like you said, for methodology purpose, I I had to define it and I had to figure out who I want to bring to the table. And I decided to go for people who live in the city, Munich or Copenhagen for at least one year. So they have a bit of an impression of how it is to live in the city and who are older than 18 years old, which is the European standard for being an adult. Um, so that was my yeah restrictions that I had. And then I tried to get people from all like officially the, the neighborhoods or the districts and, and the cities that has different names so that I really get a picture of the whole city of the whole mm-hmm. municipality. And that's how I, how I try to find the people. And you said you have to adjust when you're in the field to collect the data. And that is so true. <laughs> I, I always tell my students that for me, that was by far the hardest part of my, of my PhD, just to be out there and then to adjust to what happens in reality, in contrast to how I planned it to be.
0: I'm glad we raised the point, because for any researchers that are listening to this, especially new researchers, very often this happens in the field as a researcher myself. How do we put in contingency plans very quickly? Because oftentimes you only have a limited time or budget to be in the field. You can't not do the field work that you set out to do. So you have to find some way to do that. And also the, the issue of defining who we are going to speak to, who residents are, Uh, is pretty, is is, is rather critical, right? But one of the things we know as researchers, we can never get to everybody. So we have to draw lines around what we can do realistically and what still allows the study to be robust. So from all of this, this work, and I know this is part of a bigger slice of work from your PhD, what were the main findings that you concluded in this paper?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of findings uh, also in that paper, but I think the most important aspect I want to highlight is that if we want to include residents into destination governance or tourism planning, we have to go beyond the understanding of participation, because that is often from a planning or political perspective. And like my data showed, people or residents are not interested in that kind of participation. So we have to come up with different ways of how to include, which is why I prefer to talk about inclusive tourism or destination governance. And that encompasses three aspects. And that's the motivation, the opportunity and the ability. We have to make sure that all three aspects are covered. I might give an example at that point. Berlin just has been a lot in the media, at least in Germany, because they implemented something like a residence committee for their tourism planning, which I think is amazing. And it's always good if destinations have the resources to do that. But that is only giving them the opportunity to participate. It does not equal to give them the motivation or to motivate people to join this committee. And they might still feel that they are not able, so they don't have the ability, or they feel they don't have the ability, which is actually the same from their perspective, to participate in such a committee. So I think it's very important that we cover all three aspects, motivation, opportunity, and ability. If we really want to achieve inclusive or participatory
0: governance i think that's an important point you raise you know while we talk about stakeholder consultation residence consultation very often if they don't have the capacity or the motivation or the ability to be a part of this then it becomes a futile exercise right and in so doing how then Does this impact the quality of data and the decision-making that it relies on the data we've collected? So in terms of this study and how it's been able to be interpreted in practical terms, can you tell us a little bit about that? For example, have you presented this to tourism authorities in, in either of the cities? And if not, do you intend to?
1: Yes, I, I did present it already to the colleagues from Munich. It was like the two people from the DMO, which is in Munich, a public DMO, so they're part of the city council. and then one person who is representative for the tourism industry in Munich, the three of them. So we had a meeting and I presented my research results because they supported me for years, you know, so it was it was very important to me to share what I found out. And they thought it would, of course, be a bit provocative, some thoughts. But it would be very interesting for them to switch perspective, like to, to see how I look at destination governance and the role of residents in this destination governance. I was also very, very interested in hearing their thoughts because they have to work with that every day. And they probably have a bit more uh, practical, realistic perspective than I do as a researcher, so I think it was very enriching for both of us to talk about things like should the destination governance be, be led by a person from a cultural administration department or should it be like the economic administration department and aspects like that. And for Copenhagen, I did not present the results yet, but it is definitely a plan because I think it's very, very important to check in for myself how realistic and supportive are my findings and to get the insight from their perspective, how they are developing, uh, working with residents in the future.
0: Okay, because of course, uh, you know when when residents uh, when there is a backlash towards tourism, very often it's because residents feel a helplessness, right? And you mentioned the word over tourism. And of course, what we see in cities like Amsterdam and Venice and Barcelona is that the people who are benefiting from tourism, as in the property owners, <laughs> are very often not the ones who bear the costs of too much tourism. It's the residents, right? and this this tension continues throughout. Do you see social movements having any part to play in both Munich and Copenhagen towards making tourism more inclusive and sustainable?
1: Mm. It's a very good aspect that you mentioned. And just before I answer the question, I want to highlight that my my results actually showed that, like you said, there is an economic benefit and some people are aware of it. And I think, according to my data, it's actually also the most visible um, benefit of tourism, the economic part. But when I talk to individuals, and that's a nice thing about focus groups, right? You get the community perspective, but you also get the individual perspective on a different level. And they highlighted that the social cultural as well, the psychological benefits are way more important for them. Like they, they do not care about an economic benefit anymore, when they start to feel threatened in their privacy or like when pictures are taken of their children without asking for permission, they do not care anymore if, if that's a good income for the city. Uh, so that is one very interesting aspect as well, that it's more the sociocultural benefits, uh, that residents see. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's in both cities quite, quite obvious uh, that that was A higher priority, actually.
0: Your findings are very consistent with what I see here, not too far away from where I'm sitting now in Kyoto and in Japan. You know, Japan's most famous heritage cities. This idea that the city has not become theirs anymore. This idea that the city has become a kind of Disneyland for tourists. You know, they they live in a theme park. And and you're right. At some point, whatever economic returns there are don't account for the social and cultural change that's taking place in the city. So given this very important research you're doing, what's your next work? What can we see from you coming up next?
1: Yeah, well, the next step, I think is gonna be a bit more with the resilience part that I looked into and the community and the social resilience. Because again, we if we want to become better, what was the slogan during the pandemic, and if we want to avoid that the tourism industry is going to crash again, if we want to avoid over tourism 2.0, we want to become more resilient, right? And if you look at the word resilience, it actually means to jump back. So I developed this idea of jumping forward, which is in some aspects in resilience included as well, but the word itself is still misleading. So I would rather talk about pro salience mm-hmm. and the idea of pro salience is something I'm developing at the moment. And I think the next paper will focus on that as well. And there's actually one publication already where I just came up with that concept and I have to dive deeper into it and see where pro is taking us in the future.
0: Okay, feel free to advertise it. Where did, has that paper been published, Aoife?
1: It's a it's actually a, a book in in German. Unfortunately, my contribution is in English, but I think it's the only one in English. <laughs> uh, it's mostly for for the German speaking people with a with the whole contribution.
0: Like most researchers, if you want to find that, all you need to do is go to Google Scholar or something like that and type in Eva exactly. you will find exactly. You'll find the work there. So before we before we finish up, Eva, one of the things that strikes me is that, um, and we talked about this earlier. Obviously the dependence the extent to which a city is dependent on tourism can have an impact on all of this right in Copenhagen and Munich's case is there a dependency on tourism you think
1: I do think there is no dependency on tourism I think it is important But both cities are generally economically very important cities for their countries. Like they have many large companies, stock market companies in their city. Um, And tourism plays one role, but it's probably not as important. It's definitely not as important as it is, for example, in Venice. And that is, like you say, another aspect which makes like or influences the tolerance level probably. Yeah.
0: Certainly having a more diversified economy rather than one that's a monocultural economy based only on tourism sets, sets a city up for the kinds of disturbances you talk about. And certainly when we look at Venice and Barcelona, exactly. that's quite evident. Yeah. yeah, I agree. OK, if you were to do this research again, is there one thing you would, you would do differently?
1: I would conduct the data earlier, before a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, that was not to predict. But yeah, of course, that was my biggest challenge I had. And I would try even harder to get the voices of marginalized people.
0: Uh-huh. Yep. That's always the case, because in, in hindsight, we can always do something better, right? And I, yeah. I think this is, this is a really interesting angle you're taking, looking at marginalized people, because if we look at a resident group and we only interview people, benefiting from tourism, we get a skewed perspective, right? And very often they are the, the people who are most capable and well-positioned to be part of these processes, whereas many of the people you spoke about seem to be on the fringes or the periphery of these kinds of processes, and therefore their voices are rarely heard.
1: Exactly. And, and then that leaves like a, a pro-participatory bias, kind of. Like I ask people to voluntarily participate in focus groups. And if those people would generally not be interested in in participating, they would also not join my focus groups. So there is some sort of bias, which I tried very, very hard to avoid and to minimize. And it's also probably because I was a single researcher, like I did it all by myself and I did not really have any fundings. So I would, for the next time, try to get an assistant, some support, whatever, to just work even harder with that aspect and to include more people and more voices, yes.
0: A final comment about uh, your observations. You said you haven't been back to Copenhagen uh, since the study has concluded. Have you been back to Munich and have you seen any changes? Have things gone back to normal, how it used to be? Or is, is there some discernible change?
1: Hmm. I have been back to Munich this summer, and I took a group of students with me and we looked into the tourism development since the pandemic, which was highly interesting also regarding my my background and my thesis that I finished at that point. And it was not like the tourism level was not back to 2019. But it was kind of growing in that direction again. The atmosphere was still relaxed. I must say that the people in Munich, they never really complained about tourism. They have a very chill attitude and that was still present, especially considering that they just had a break of tourism and everyone was just hoping that the Oktoberfest would take place this year, which like I said, it, it does, as we speak. So people were very enthusiastic about tourism. And regarding Copenhagen, I will be there in two weeks. I'm very excited. Yeah, we will see how, how that changed and how I perceive the city now after the break of tourism.
0: Fantastic. Well, Eva, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on the Tourism Geographies podcast. For those listening, Eva's paper is titled The End of Participatory Destination Governance, as we thought to know it. Um, and it was published in Tourism Geographies on the 1st of May, 2022. Please go to the website to, to check out the, the paper in full, if you have access to it. If you don't have access to it, you can see Eva's email on the website, I'm sure if you sent her an email, she'd be more than happy for you to, um, to have a copy of that really important work. So with that said, thank you once again, Eva, And we look forward to your development of the concepts you to- talked about, especially the idea of prosilience, which I think uh, has the potential to make a good contribution to knowledge, which is something that publications like tourism geographies is always looking to do. And uh, the progression of your research uh, in, in this regard is uh, something that we look forward to very much. So thank you again, Ether.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me, Joseph. It was really nice to talk about my research and to share my experiences. And it was it was amazing. And I wish you all the best for this podcast. It's a
0: great. So for anyone going to Copenhagen or Munich, read Eva's mm-hmm. paper first before you go. to get a a good gauge on what's happening but also consider your own urban context and whether these kinds of issues resonate with you okay then we look forward to you joining our next podcast in the uh, tourism geographies podcast series we say thank you to ether once again in germany and from me in japan goodbye for now